With that in mind, uh, I do want to draw your attention to um, the sheet that you have or you should have, or if you brought a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. If you've been with us this semester, we have been slowly working our way through the gospel of Mark, particularly the first eight chapters, and we now find ourselves in the middle of Mark chapter 3. So with that in mind, I'm going to read this um, passage, beginning in verse 13. And um, so give your attention now to uh, the reading of God's word. It says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, good nickname, which means sons of thunder, which is an amazing nickname, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray, and then we'll consider it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, indeed, our, our hope is built on nothing less than your, the blood of Jesus and his righteousness, and I do pray that that would, be, that would be encouraging to our souls tonight, that we would rest in the righteousness that we have in Jesus, that we would claim a hold of it for the first time for those of us that don't know it that your spirit would really join us in these next few moments and would teach us, would open up our eyes, would soften hearts, would bring those that are in darkness into the light, would comfort, would convict, would encourage, would do all the things that your spirit promises to do. So will you do that now? Will you come and will you meet with us as we engage this passage? And we do pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I know the million-dollar question that you want to interact with tonight is this. What has happened to Miley? Seriously. And really, the, the, that question comes out of um, an article that I read this past week, which I found really interesting. The article, you can find it online. It's called Seven Reasons Why Child Stars Go Crazy. And it's actually written by someone who was herself a child star. If you remember the, um, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, it's written by the little girl that has now grown up and you know, did not receive the sort of celebrity life that a lot of these child stars experience. But it does, I think it's very interesting if you think about it. Why is that the trend for these cute, you know, adorable child stars on the Disney Channel or wherever they come from to just kind of go off the deep end? So, you know, think about Miley. Think about Bieber. Think about the Olsen twins. Lindsay Lohan. I mean, even Brittany had her little season of cray-cray for a while there. So why is it that child stars really do um, kind of go off the deep end? Well, here's a little excerpt from her article. Here's what, you know, here's what she says. She says this. Imagine if you, as a kid, had millions of people watching your every move. First, there's your own entourage, parents or guardians, agents, managers, producers, studio heads, executives of all kinds... And then there are the fans, kids your age who think they know you because they've seen your face on TV, 
parents who pray you stay squeaky clean because their children want to be you, having to live up to your fan base is a little like having to deal with a million strict parents who don't actually love you. I think that's an amazing line. Having to, deal with your, having to live up to your fan base is a little like having to deal with a million strict parents who don't actually love you. They reward you for your cuteness and cleverness, but are quick to judge and punish. They do not want you to grow up ever. Now, I think that's really insightful. As one of the reasons that this author gives, one of the seven that she lists for, while, for why child stars go crazy is basically this. She's saying, everybody sees your face, Everybody watches your movies. Everybody follows you on Twitter. Everybody likes your Facebook page. No one knows you. And therefore, no one really loves you. And the reason I'm bringing this up tonight is because I do think it's interesting and it's telling, not just as a diagnosis of kind of our celebrity culture, but I think it's really telling to the way that we do relationships. I mean, think about the way that we kind of do relationships now. Think about all the people you follow on Twitter and all the people that follow you. Think about all your Facebook friends, all the people that you're connected to on Instagram and Pinterest. These are shadows of relationships. They're not real relationships, they're echoes of relationships. And they give you a real sense that you know the other person because you know what they're thinking, you know, what's, you know what they're eating because they're taking pictures of it and showing it to the world. You, you really do get a sense that you know somebody else, but you really don't. These are, these are shadows of relationships, these are echoes of relationships. So when you come into UT, everybody is desperately craving real relationships. Everybody is desperately craving authentic relationships. I mean, it's, real, it's interesting. If you follow any of the research out there right now, tons of people will tell you we are more connected than we've ever been in human history because of internet. We're more connected than we've ever been in human history, and yet all the studies will tell you we are the most lonely that we, than we've ever been in human history. Right? I mean, I think you feel this. Like I said, you come into UT and you crave connecting with someone. You want to find your niche. You want to find your community. And part of what's so frustrating to come into Tennessee is that it's, there's a million different communities to get involved in, and it's really hard to figure out which one am I going to actually get connected to. That's why if you're a transfer student or a freshman, that particular year can be incredibly frustrating, disorienting, hard. But when you find it, when you find your little niche, you find your people, Community really is amazing, and actually your time at UT gets more enjoyable, it's more freeing. That community is a real life-giving thing. But the flip side of community, even though it's wonderful, life-giving, the flip side is it's really hard. It can be really dysfunctional. I mean, you'll see this come out when you have to start figuring out where you're going to live next year. And you start to have those awkward conversations with people like, I want to live with you, and then they're kind of beating around the bush of, I don't know if I really want to live with you. And you start having these kind of awkward conversations. The community gets really hard and uncomfortable then. Or you start thinking about, especially if some of you seniors, look back at your, you know, your four years at Tennessee, and you think, man, I've been friends with several different little pockets of people. During my whole four years here, I've been friends with this group, and then I bounced over to this group, and then I bounced over to this group. And I think it's a real testament to the fact that relationships are really hard. And they're really confusing and painful. So while community on the one hand is is incredibly amazing and freeing, it really does kind of enhance your college experience, it's really hard and complicated on the other hand. So what do we do with it? How do we enjoy and really participate in this thing called community? Well, I do think um, 
this passage that we just read can help us. It really can help us begin to understand and navigate the complexity and the beauty that is offered to us in community, specifically Christian community, specifically the community that Jesus is forming, which is what we're looking at in this passage. So what I want to do is I want to just look at three quick things from this little passage we just read in Mark. If you think about Jesus' community, the community that Jesus is forming, we're going to see three things. It's origin, namely where it comes from. It's purpose, what the point of it is. And then it's power, how this thing actually has the ability to thrive and to function. So those are the three things. The origin of Jesus' community, the purpose of it, and then the power for it. Make sense? Party time. Okay, first, it's origin. Where does this come from? Where does, the, where, where does this thing start? What is the origin of the community of Jesus? And by the way, just to footnote my sources, I'm getting a lot of help from my friend, Sean Slate, who is our speaker at the RUF uh, Fall Conference, if you were there. So thank you, Sean Slate. Uh, if, look at verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus called to him those he wanted. Jesus is the one that forms his community. In other words, this is to say Jesus is the origin of Christian community and you are not. And I am not. Which if we're honest, this is really, we really hate this. We really hate this. Because we want a community of people around us that look like us, dress like us, vote like us, get excited about the same things as us. And Jesus is saying, you don't get to set the terms for the community that I'm going to put you in. I'm the origin of it. Not you in particular. And really what that means is, if you think about it, I want to be the origin of my Christian community because I want a group of people surrounding me that make me feel cool, that make me feel important, and really make my life easier. You want this, and I want this. And this really reminded me, as I was thinking about this, um, when I was a college student at the University of Oklahoma and was involved in RUF, there was a guy in our group, in our ministry, that I'm just going to call Joe to protect his dignity for where the story is heading. But he was, um, he was really tall. He was really socially awkward. He was really goofy. Uh, he, he wore his pants literally up to his sternum. He was like, I mean, he was almost like cliche how nerdy this guy was. He had, he had Coke bottle-sized um, glasses. And for, for whatever reason, he really he liked me and wanted to hang out with me, and uh, he would always invite me over to his house because he had this collection of Lord of the Rings miniature figurines that he himself had painted, and he was really proud of it and wanted to show me. And uh, really, as I look back, much, much, much to my shame, I, I really I avoided him at all cost. I made up excuses and lied to him about why I couldn't go to his house to go see his Lord of the Rings collection, and... Um, I really avoided him, and, and, and I, I think, looking back, it was much to my loss that I missed out on that opportunity to get to know him. But, but really, as I reflect on that, that was me saying I wanted to be the origin of my Christian community. I wanted to be the one that formed my particular group, and if I was the one that was controlling it, I would not have picked Joe to be a part of it. I would not have picked him to be a part of my Christian community because I wanted to be the origin of it. But for whatever reason, Jesus had it where he formed this thing where the two of us were put together to force to deal with each other. And I just handled it really terribly. But if you think about it, uh, Jesus chooses to put people in your Christian community 
that are not like you. I mean, there are people in this room right now that you're seeking to avoid, that you would not have chosen to be in this room. And by the way, there are lots of people in this room that have, would not have chosen you either. But this is, the, this is the particular thing. Jesus is not about forming this homogenous group of people that all look the same, that all dress the same, that all are excited about the same things. He's, a for, he's forming this wildly eclectic, diverse thing. And really, that's what we want in RUF. We want this room, we want this ministry, we want this community of RUF to really be a reflection of the community that Jesus himself is forming in his church, which is one to be incredibly diverse. But that means that it's really hard. But, but I mean, we're, we're not alone. This is not a novel concept. Look at, some of the, look at some of these disciples. In verses 16 through 19, we get a list of the 12 disciples. And we don't, get, we don't know a ton about these guys, but we know enough to, to know that this would have been an incredibly diverse and eclectic group of people. For example, look at some of their personality differences. In verse 16, we see Simon Peter. Simon Peter had this huge personality. He was impulsive. He spoke before he thought. He wore his emotions on his sleeves. Just all throughout the gospel stories, you hear Peter just going to this big, splashy personality. And Jesus puts Peter in the same group with James and John, verse 17, who Jesus nicknames the Sons of Thunder. Which, by the way, that's pretty stinking awesome, isn't it? The Sons of Thunder. Now, I don't know why, but my guess is the reason why they got this nickname is because they are every bit of big personalities, type A, big personalities. So, for example, in Luke chapter 9, you get the story about um, James and John, and they're walking through this Samaritan village, and all the Samaritans are rejecting them, and they're you know, like booing at them, and they don't like what James and John are up to. And so James and John get frustrated by this, and they turn to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can you call down fire and burn up all these people? That's, that's how they... Um, it's actually in the Bible. You can read it. That's how they deal with conflict and with uh, rejection is we're just going to obliterate you. So, th- of course, there was conflict, huge personality differences, but not only were there personality differences, there are political differences. So look at verse 18. You hear about Matthew, another amazing name. But Matthew is the, um, Matthew is, is the other name for Levi, who we heard about a few weeks ago, who was the tax collector. Now, remember, tax collectors were collecting taxes to support the Roman government. But not only do we have Matthew in the mix, look at verse 18, you also hear about this other Simon. Simon is the zealot. Now, you have to do a little kind of digging to kind of figure out what is that zealot thing all about. But zealots were a, was a, basically a political party that was in rebellion against Roman government. They wanted Israel to rise up and to rebel and kind of overthrow the government. So here's what's happening. You've got this person and this person in Jesus' little group. This person is over here politically. This person is over here politically. This person is for big government. This, for, this person is against big government. Both there together. And that's the picture that we have here. Here's the thing. This community is incredibly eclectic, incredibly diverse, and that's really what we want to see here. That's what we want RUF to be about because that's what... I think Jesus wants RUF to be about, what Jesus wants his church to be about, what Jesus wants the Christian community at Tennessee to be about, which means we want homeschoolers sitting next to public schoolers, people from East Memphis sitting next to people from East Tennessee. We want Democrats and Republicans right here together 
whites, blacks, Mexicans, Asians, whoever, all here together. We want Greeks and non-Greeks here together. Gamers and athletes right here together. An eclectic, wild bunch of people that would not get together, that would not normally hang out and would not normally have anything in common, that's what Jesus is forming. That's the type of group and that's the type of community that Jesus is forming. Is that what you thought? Is that what you thought? When you think about the church, think about RUF, think about a Christian community, is that what you envisioned? Or do you picture everybody that looks the same, dresses the same, votes the same? It's not what Jesus is doing. That's the origin of Christian community. It's, it's Jesus. That's your Sunday school answer. Let's look at the next thing. The next thing is um, its purpose. In other words, okay, Jesus kind of forms together this eclectic group of people. What's the point? Why is he doing this? Well, there are actually three little purpose clauses, if you want to get grammatical. Three purpose clauses in verses 14 and 15. The first clause there in verse 14 says that he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. If you just had pause right there and just let that sink in, I mean, that's an amazing verse. The, the, the whole, one of the points that Jesus is forming in this community is so that they can be with him because he wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. I mean, have you ever thought about that? That he really is looking and seeking after intimacy and communion with you. you know, I, if you're anything like me, it's very tempting to think of Jesus with the arms folded, the foot tapping, that look of disappointment on his face, because we're always failing him, right? I mean, am I right? I mean, that's sort of the, the, the image that we can so easily get is this look of like disappointment, of like, oh, okay, you screwed up again. But that's not the image we see here. It's this image of, I just desperately want to be with you. When you woke up this morning, if you are in Jesus, if you have responded to him by faith, that means that he was eager, eager to commune with you. That's an amazing purpose. Look at the next two. If you keep going in the next verse, there are two more reasons why Jesus kind of assembles this community. The, first, the, the, the second reason is to send them out to preach. And the third little clause there is to have authority to drive out demons. Now, that does not mean <clears throat> that everyone in this room is called to be a preacher and uh, an exorcist. These specific purposes were given, in some ways, uniquely to the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. But if you take that idea and you zoom it out a little bit, generalize it in a sense, that basically means that the community of Jesus is to, be, is to have a ministry of word and deed, that we preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and that we, with our actions, fight every force of evil that we see out there. In other words, the community of Jesus exists for the spiritual healing of the world, to spiritually renovate every nook and cranny where we see brokenness, where we see decay, where we see injustice, where we see stuff that is ugly, that's where the community of Jesus steps in to clean, to heal, to restore. So this is why RUF gathers together in large groups, small groups, and one-on-one, -on -one, and we preach the gospel. We open up the Bible and we talk about who Jesus is and what he has done. We preach it to ourselves and we preach it to each other. This is why we are going to pray for UT on Thursday. We're going to walk through the streets and pray and ask God's spirit to come down for his kingdom to, to be extended because we really want to see spiritual renovation. 
This is why we pour our efforts and our resources and our manpower into Thrive, formerly known as SOAR. This is why, we're, that's why we link up with Food in the Fort and help feed people that need food. This is why we take spring break trips to inner city Chicago to help fight injustice there, the injustice of poverty. And so really, this is, this is the point. The Christian community exists to fight injustice at every level, economic, social, environmental, systemic, whatever. This is why the community of Jesus exists. It's for the spiritual healing of the world, which really, this, this taps into, have you ever thought about why does Jesus pick 12 disciples? That's such a random number. Why 12? Why not 100? 1,000? I mean, he could have done whatever he wanted, right? Why 12? Well, if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were commonly referred to as the 12 tribes of Israel, which is a way of talking about the, the, 12, the descendants of the 12 sons of this dude named Israel. But what, we, what Jesus is doing here is he's forming a new Israel, a new community, the, the church, the community of Jesus. And the mission statement of the new Israel is the same exact mission statement of the old Israel, which is what? Genesis 12. God says, I have blessed you so that you will be a blessing to others. I have blessed you so that you will be a blessing to others. That's the point. The community that Jesus is forming exists to be with him, to preach the gospel, and then to embody the gospel in word and deed. And so let me ask you this. <clears throat> if, if, if you claim to be a Christian, and you find yourself as a part of Christian community, is that why you're here? Is that why you're connected to the Christian community? to be with him, to proclaim the gospel, and then to serve the world, to bless the world? Or do you find yourself really just being a consumer where you're gorging yourself on Christian ministries, Christian conferences, podcasts, books, whatever, but, but really have no intention whatsoever of blessing or loving or serving anyone? I mean, I, I think this, this is really... Um, indicting to us in a lot of ways. Is it on your radar at all? If you think about the people on your hall, the people in your classes, the people in your neighborhood, are they on your radar at all as someone that you can move towards to love, to get to know, to serve, to lay down your life for? Is there, if there's someone on your, in your sphere of influence that you see that is lonely, that is addicted, that is hard to be around, that nobody likes, that's the person that you and this community is called to move towards. Are they on your radar? Are you a consumer? Do you serve? That's the purpose. And that's the picture of Christian community. That, that, that's its origin. That's its purpose. But I know, last question. Some of you are thinking, okay, how in the world is this at all possible? How do you get a bunch of people that are totally, would never have anything to do with each other, bring them together in a way where they actually connect they're intimate with each other. They, they're pouring their hearts into each other's lives. And they're on the same page as far as being on the same mission to serve and to bless the world. How, where do you get the power to do this? Well, that's the, that's the third thing. That's the last thing I want to look at. <clears throat> where, you, where you see the power in this passage, there's, there's a very subtle hint that kind of threads its way throughout this. Did you notice how Jesus renames some of them? Kind of as I mentioned before, Jesus is like giving nicknames to people and just he renames people, which I always thought was really 
kind of funny. <laughs> it's like Simon walks up to Jesus. He's like, hey, I'm Simon. Who are you? And Jesus is like, oh, I'm Jesus. But you're Peter now. It's like, I mean, imagine if I did that. You come up to me like, hey, I'm Jacob. Bill. We're going to call you Bill. It's like it's very bizarre. But this is what Jesus is doing. He, he gives them new names. And actually for all of them, if you look at verse 14, he renames all of them. He gives them a new title. He gives everyone the title of apostle, which really is the Greek word that just means sent ones. What he's doing is for every single one of them, he's given them a new identity. An identity that's, that's rooted, connected to him. And the reason why this is so important, the reason why this is the power for community is that any other identity that you build your life on fractures community. It destroys community. It doesn't enable it. I'll say that again because that's a massive statement. That's a controversial statement. What I just said is if you build your identity on anything other than Jesus, that actually destroys community. It doesn't build it. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, let me, let me dive into it this way. Um, a couple of years ago, I read an article in the Huffington Post that was talking about people who primarily eat organic and local food. And the article went on to say, there was a study that was done that found out that people who eat organic food are more judgmental than people that, that don't. And so the article went on to basically explain the reason being, so the article um, kind of argued, was that whenever somebody chose to eat something organic or local, it gave them a sense of moral superiority over the people that didn't. It gave them this sort of delicious self-satisfaction that they could pat themselves on the back for their moral, environmental, and nutritional choices that someone else didn't and gave them kind of a leg up. So the article goes on to kind of show all these reasons why and blah, blah, blah. But the basic point is, and I think it's really interesting, I think they're putting their finger on something that says, okay, if, you, if really the thing that makes you special and different from everyone else is that you buy and eat local, organic, whatever, food, that sets you apart from the rest of the world and, and makes you feel superior to them. And what's happened is the human race is being divided in your mind, and you're on the right side and they're on the wrong side, and it's fracturing and destroying community. Let's take an example that's a little bit more obvious. Let's talk about politics. Why don't we? Um, if the thing that really makes you feel special about yourself, the thing that really says, okay, in my mind, this is what makes me different from other people, this is what sets me apart, is because I am politically active and I'm politically on the correct side of things. If that's what you base your identity on, then of course you're going to demonize the other side. Of course, they're what's wrong with this country. The other side, the other side is the reason why everything is going to, you know, hell in a handbasket. That's the reason, you know, basically, then you um, demonize the other side. And then you spray venom all over Facebook and Twitter about it. But what's happening is you're dividing the human race and it's destroying community. Nobody would want to be your friend from the other side if that's what you're building your identity on. But it could be anything. It's not just politics. It's not just organic food. It could be anything. If you're building your life and your identity on the fact that you work hard, of course you're going to look down your nose on people that you think are lazy. If you build your life on having um, good fashion, like me, you, of course you're going to look down your nose on people that you think have bad taste. If you build your life and you build your identity on the reality of your religious and moral convictions, 
You're going to look down your nose on people that don't have your religious and moral convictions and demonize them, and it fractures the human race and it destroys community. If you build your identity on your race, you're going to demonize and look down your nose at other races. If you build your identity on the fact that you're an open-minded, tolerant person, you're going to look down your nose on the people that you think are intolerant, which is a form of intolerance, by the way, but you get the point. If you build your identity on anything, it divides the human race and it fractures the possibility of community. Only Jesus, only an identity that's rooted and built on him will actually enable community to flourish. How is that the case, though? Because I know some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. I know lots of Christians that do this exact same thing you're talking about. I know lots of Christians that divide the human race. We're right, they're wrong. We're holy, they're not. Don't involve yourself in the world. Don't involve yourself in them. That's incredibly divisive, is it not? So what do I mean? How can I possibly say that an identity that is rooted on Jesus alone is the only thing that will empower real community? Here's how. At the center of Christianity is a man dying for the very people that disagreed with him. At the very center of Christianity is a man that has laying down his life to graciously, lovingly die for the very people that disagreed with him. And so if, if, you're, if you really are a Christian and you say at the center of my life is a man that laid down his life for people that disagreed with him, how in the world can you throw bricks at people that disagree with you? How in the world can you distance yourself and avoid people that may disagree with you? When you take the gospel of grace into your heart of hearts, your whole identity gets reformatted. And what I mean by that is now you see yourself, that the primary way that you understand who you are is that you are first and foremost a sinner saved by God's grace. And when that becomes first, everything else that is true about you gets demoted to second place. Meaning, you're a sinner saved by God's grace first, you are Republican second. You are a sinner saved by God's grace first, you are white second. You are a Democrat second. You are a Cayo second. You are whatever else second. Because when that is the primary identity factor, when, you are pro- when, you, when the thing that is most true about you is that you are a sinner saved by God's grace, that completely destri- destroys pride. You, you no longer have any ability, no basis any longer to look down your nose on anybody else because you understand yourself that you're a, you're a sinner, completely undeserving of anything. But when you are melted and moved by the grace that is extended to you in Christ, that is what actually gives you the motivation, the engine to love, to move towards people that disagree with you and not want to throw bricks at them, not want to make fun of them, but to actually move towards them to serve them. Only when your identity is grounded on the gospel of grace When you understand that you're a sinner saved by God's grace alone, it destroys your pride and it destroys your willingness to want to distance yourself from people. You're you're, you're freed to love. And that is what really enables true community. It really enables people from all over the map to get together and and be on the same page about that. I'm I'm going to make three quick applications to make this practical. And then we're done. Three quick practical applications to make this concrete. And here's the, here's the way I'm going to divide it. Jump in 
Love out, repent deep. Here's what I mean. Jump in. This basically means stop being a consumer of Christian ministries. I know, as I've gotten to know UT students, y'all are involved in like four or five different campus ministries, two or three different churches, four different Bible studies. I love you. That's insane. That's crazy. That really is crazy. I love you. I really do. I would love to talk with you more about that, but just hear me say up front, that's insane. Because when you're doing that, what you're doing is, is nobody knows you. Just a lot of people notice you. And you're, you're, you're preventing yourself from actually experiencing and enjoying and being a part of a real Christian community because no one knows you, they just notice you. Nobody can hit a moving target, and that's what you are. And so really, my encouragement, my loving challenge to you is to pick one. Pick one and dive in. Jump in deep and let other people really get to know you and allow yourself to get to know other people. And I'll I'll put my cards on the table. I would love for that community to be RUF. I'm a little biased. But it doesn't have to be RUF. I mean, we're not that great. There's lots of other great ministries on, on campus. Part of me would rather you be involved in a ministry that's not RUF, if that's the only one, where you're being fed, where you're being known, where you can get to know other people, rather than you be involved in that ministry, RUF, that ministry, that ministry, and have no one know you. I want to encourage you to repent of your FOMO. You know what I mean? Your fear of missing out? Repent of your FOMO and start trusting Jesus. Start trusting Jesus. Jump into one community and allow other people to know you. I know it's scary because you want to hide. And it's eat, you want to blend in. You don't really want to be known, but you desperately want to be known. So jump in. Second, love out. Meaning, where on this campus can you begin pouring out your heart, pouring out your life for the service of someone else? If there's someone on your hall that you know is lonely, that you know is hurting, that you know is confused, that you know is homesick, that's the person that you need to start moving towards. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. Where on this campus can you begin moving towards and not and stop, you know, uh, just just consuming the campus and start actually serving it? Where on this campus, where in the city, can you pour yourself out to to make it actually more beautiful than it was than when you got here? So jump in, love out. Last thing, repent deep. And what I mean by that is that you, you begin to identify and start repenting of whatever those identity factors are that bubble up, that want to claim priority in your life. Like I said, if you're a Christian, your primary identity is that you are a sinner saved by, the, by God's grace. But when other things start to bubble up and the thing that you really think, this is the thing that makes me really special, is that I'm wealthy, that I'm popular, that I'm smart, I'm athletic, I'm cool, whatever. When those things bubble up, those are the things that you need to repent of. That's the most threatening thing to your spirituality. It's not porn. It's not alcohol. It's not the biggie, scary sins. It's those things. So jump in. Love out. Repent deep. That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, as we come to you and knowing, man, we, are, we really are terrible at community. 
We want it to be about us. We want it to look like us. We don't want to need you. We don't want to serve anyone. We, we want to surround ourselves with comfortable, easy, like-minded people. And Father, w- will you enable me, first and foremost, to repent, to walk in the ways of Jesus, and to die to my sense of comfort, to die to my desires of uh, ease, that you would allow me even... Um, to face the fear of being known, of being seen, of being exposed by other people, so that I really would be um, known deeply. And I pray the same for um, my friends here. I pray that you will give us the courage to invest, uh, the courage to pour ourselves out uh, within this community and within the broader community of just the campus and the city. Father, help us to be pulled outside of ourselves for the benefit of other people. We desperately need it. We are so selfish, and we are so thankful that we have a great king that is forgiving and gracious to really selfish people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.